Hello and welcome to episode 188 of the Rollo and Slappy Show. Today is March 16th, 2020. I am Rollo McFlugel. With me as always is Slappy Jones 2. Show notes page for this episode will be mcflugel.com slash 188 where you'll be able to find a link to our sponsor libertymugs.com where you can go buy some mugs uh, in this tenuous time that we are in. Um, We'll say that you can use them as food, toilet paper, water, whatever you need them for because, you know, supplies are dwindling, but we are uh, fully stocked. So, uh, And because we have a $100 mug, we have some available for you. Yes, and uh, we won't say it does cure the coronavirus, but we have I'm reason. I'm going to say it doesn't. We have reason to suggest it. Um, so with that, maybe we can get a, uh, a, a medical person, like a doctor, to uh, kind of prove or disprove that claim. So, Which Slappy, do you want to introduce... today's episode. Yeah, do you want to introduce our um, guest? Sure. Our guest today is making a return appearance on the Rollo and Slappy show, but it's been a while. Uh, and I guess this is his either his third or fourth appearance on the show because we split up our very first Bitcoin episode into two episodes uh, with Fake Raj. Welcome back to the show, Fake. How's it going, guys? It's great. Pretty so, good, man. Mm-hmm. So my first question is, I ha- I've, there's this like, rash on my... Uh... <laughs> arm that yeah so uh i mean i could turn on the video yeah i could it depends i have to take a look at it there's like a zillion different types of rashes ah well this this yeah. one's pretty interesting yeah it's like what color is it is it scaly is it raised it's flat <laughs> itchy or not or not oh it's very it's... itchy very red um uh-huh. it was after uh i hung out with car campit for a little bit Oh, really? Okay, yeah. well, that guy's... That could be dangerous. Yeah, that guy sounds like he carries a lot of contagious diseases on him. Probably. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so, I mean, that's all I had. We wanted to ask you. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so, thanks no, for listening, it? everyone. We'll catch you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess um, uh, let's try to get this back on track. Yeah. Thank you, Rallo. Appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um. There's been a lot of talk out there. Well, not a lot. It's all been about coronavirus the last um, week or so, maybe a little more than that. Every time I go on a news website, it seems like every single link is to something about coronavirus. Someone got uh, infected here and and maybe someone died and – then it leads to discussions on sometimes on Twitter about what would be better, universal health care, free market health care. The United States has free market health care. We're going to talk about that a little bit. And just some of the bureaucracy and some of the holdups in the system by someone who actually works in the system on a daily basis. So Vic's going to give us a little guiding, guidance on that. First of all, how much – I mean I'm just going to – Put it out there. How much of a market, a, a market for healthcare, is there that you are aware of in the United States? It's very, very limited. Um, there's pockets of a market, like you could say, um, uh, things like uh, plastic surgery is because it's not covered by insurance or Medicare or Medicaid. There is a market for that, but most things in healthcare are highly regulated. They're subsidized through third-party payer programs like Medicare or Medicaid or insurance companies. There's um, there's just – it's controlled by the government 
from every aspect. So you're dealing with a large amount of bureaucracy. Uh, things just aren't as simple as they would be in a normal market interaction where, you know, the seller provides some good or service and the, and the consumer just gives them money. It, there's a whole layer of, of rules and, and, and bureaucracy that just interrupts that normal market function. So let's get into that a little bit. So, mm -hmm. um, what, here's an experience I had. My son had to have surgery two years ago or so. Mm -hmm. It was a minor routine operation. You know, nothing, nothing crazy. Yeah. Uh, but when we go, we looked at our insurance and the plan I'm on, there's different tiers of doctors and facilities. And we called the doctor's office. We called the insurance company. They confirmed these are going to be the codes we're going to bill. We went to the insurance company. We told them who the doctor is, what the facility is. They're both tier one. This is great. It's all covered. You have a, mm -hmm. a copay. Great. Then I got a bill for $1,500. And it turns out the anesthesiologist or anesthetist, whoever it was, I don't yeah. you know, remember, was not in network. So I had the facility and the doctor. We were good. But then the anesthesiologist wasn't. And so he was like tier three or something. So I had to pay a stupid amount of money for that. Um, is that something that you have any idea about as a doctor? Because it was my kind of feeling that like the doctor's there, he's just doing his job. And what happens with the insurance is just kind of there, you know, like he's going to show up and he's going to treat his patients and he's going to go through it. And, it's the, you know, and then people get mad at the insurance company and why wouldn't you? I mean, we thought we checked everything, but I'm throwing this out there and I know you have limited details, but how do you explain that? Is this common? Do you know about this? I don't know. I mean, a lot about the surge area, how much that happens. But it definitely happens in ER. Like if you go to the emergency room, um, whatever, and they discharge you back home, you'll get a bill from the emergency doctor who ER doctors are kind of like freelancers a little bit because they mm -hmm. might work at a lot of different hospitals. You'll get a bill um, from the radiologist if they give you an x-ray or a CAT scan, and then you'll get a bill from the hospital itself. It's broken up. Um, but like hearing about the insurance company, I feel like insurance companies, they definitely shoulder a lot of blame for the way things are messed up. Things are they're also unfairly blamed or particularly people on the low progressives, they blame insurance companies for everything. Mm -hmm. But the reason is that the insurance companies are put in a very awkward position because they're the people paying for all the health care, right? Well, right. people give them premiums, right? And then the company pays it for all the services that are rendered. Um, but because so much is being billed to the insurance companies, probably above and beyond what they can even afford to pay, or else they go bankrupt, they're kind of turned into the bad guys because they're the ones having to tell you, no, you can't have this. No, you can't get that. So they're, they're putting in a very awkward position. And there's the, the root of the problem is a lot deeper than insurance companies. It's, uh, it's a big chunk of it is that we're relying way too much on third-party payers for our healthcare expenses, when a lot more of it should be out of pocket. Uh, yeah, totally agree. <laughs> I mean, what, one of the um, 
one of the, uh, I guess, analogies people make is like with car insurance. Like car insurance would never cover mm-hmm. your oil change exactly. or your new tires because that's wear and tear. That's, that's not a risk. That's not an insurable risk, you know. Um, and they would never cover it. It wouldn't make sense. It would just be a cost-sharing type program. Yeah. Yet that's exactly what we see in the healthcare market. Yeah. And is that – yeah, I am in the insurance industry, but I don't do health. I mean, I'm health licensed, but I don't sell health. It's not what I, you know, it's not my thing. I don't, I don't know a whole lot about it. But I'm assuming that is not due to insurance companies trying to provide more services for their clients. And of course, they would, but that's not an insurable interest. So that has to be mandated from the state, I would assume. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, yeah. it would make no sense to do it. Uh, yeah, I think that, I mean, I think that insurance definitely has a role in covering against catastrophic expenses. So Absolutely. hospital admissions, surgeries, things that, that you cannot predict. But a lot of the outpatient medical care should probably be more, should be out of pocket. So it's your doctor's visits, your routine prescriptions, your routine labs, things like that um, should probably, you should probably pay out of pocket. And so people well, or naturally inclined to think, oh, well, how can people afford that? You know, drugs are so expensive, x-rays and, and lab work and all this stuff adds up so much. But the reality is that the the cost inflation is because we are relying so extensively on third parties that we've become less price sensitive. We don't shop around. We people don't even ask. No, not really. Yeah. No. I mean, um, so they go for, I mean, they don't, yeah, they don't have any. They don't discriminate in terms of price, uh, so they just overconsume healthcare to some extent. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I uh, I had to take my cat to the vet a few months ago, and with like the uh, prescriptions that uh, they wanted to give him for uh, trying to solve whatever he had going on with him, it was like, well, how much does that cost? And she said, oh, let me give me a second. She pulled her book out and said, uh, it's going to be this. Yeah, <laughs> and so it was very nice. And I was able to sit there and say, like, oh, "Okay, that's reasonable." And if I didn't want to, I could have, you know, tried done something else. But on that note, because um, you kind of mentioned it too, what, what's going on with prescription drugs? Because those tend to keep going up in price, higher and higher, and and uh, yeah, it's a real difficult difficulty for for a lot of people, especially people who are older who have a lot of prescriptions mm-hmm. that they have to have to purchase and. And stay on. Do you have any insight on on what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, I think there there are some affordable medications that are um, that are off. They're no longer patented. But yeah, I mean, you're right. There's a there's a lot of drugs that are going you know up and up in cost. It kind of depends on what specific medication you're talking about and whether it's still in that patent window. But um, I mean, prescription drugs. It's it's such a messed up area. You might. Um, you know, you might send a prescription for somebody to the pharmacy and then they get there and they find it covered and then the pharmacy has to send you a fax and you'll have to send and then you'll have to try some alternative medication or what doctors will often have to do is something like a prior authorization where you have to call up the insurance company and spend half an hour or five minutes on the phone with them just just explaining why this particular medication is necessary for that person. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's a whole bureaucratic mess. I mean, if any anybody who's had to, you know, sit in at a pharmacy and and find out that their medications aren't covered knows this. But um, 
some medications you so you can get for relatively cheap like a good example of that is metformin which is kind of a, a very um standard diabetes medication but then um often you know in the news you're hearing about insulin being so expensive so mm -hmm. that's probably yeah there's a lot of different types of insulin there's the short acting ones and the longer acting ones the ones that are really expensive is the long acting ones like lantus or levomir those get those get rejected pretty often and so people will have to you know switch to the short acting insulins um, which they have to administer multiple times in a day when you um, say they get rejected do you mean by the insurance company yeah yeah by the insurance company they won't they won't um they won't pay for it or they won't pay for it another there's another um, class of medications um, well some people need blood thinners because they have a history of blood clots in their legs or they get pulmonary embolisms where the blood clot ends up in their lungs. Mm. Um, so they need to be on um, what we call anticoagulation. Uh, there's a new class of anticoagulants called NOAX, novel anticoagulants. Like um, you've heard, you might've heard of these like Xarelto sure. or, Elo or Eloquist or Pradaxa. Yeah. Um, so these are excellent medications because they'll thin your blood and you don't need to check what we call your INR which is a blood type measurement um, for how thick your blood is. You can just take the medications and they automatically self-regulate in the right range. Um, but they're still all under patent protection. So they're still very expensive. So if your insurance company doesn't cover them, they're probably prohibitively expensive for most people. Luckily, they're the older drug is warfarin. Um, so that's the that's the classic anticoagulant. Yeah, yeah, that's been around for decades. It's pretty cheap, but it has a significant bleeding risk because you have to you have to constantly monitor your INR and make sure that your INR stays in the exactly right range, um, depending on what your condition is. So, um, yeah, a lot of that kind of depends on just the, the 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 patents. Whether they, you know, obviously a patent, as we know, is a is a monopoly on on the production of that particular good. So there's only one provider, so they can charge monopoly prices. Do you uh, know how long they last in the medical world? Is it just like any other patent? Um, I've read like 17 years, but I, I, I don't know a lot about it. That's probably a legal question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's for quite a while. Um, yeah, so it's I think it's just a combination of dealing with the insurance approvals, the 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 exclusive monopolies that kind of drives up the cost of prescriptions. Um, a lot of people who can't afford their medicines, uh, they won't, you know, they just won't take them and then they end up in the emergency room. So then the cost is manifesting the system through, you know, increased hospital prices, you know, to for these uninsured mm -hmm. people or, right. or Medicaid patients. Yeah. So, all right. You, you mentioned Medicare, Medicaid, and how it, um, you know, a third-party payer, people don't price shop, it's paid. Could you just briefly, as simple as possible, because mm -hmm. I know there's a lot of people listening who we all have heard of Medicare and Medicaid, don't mm -hmm. know what the difference is, don't know what it is or how it works. Could you just like give a brief overview of what they are? And then one thing I'm not sure of are Medicare. When you're covered by Medicare, are they like pre-negotiated prices with hospitals and the government, or, or is it like if this is a Medicare patient, we know we can only charge X or whatever? Uh, could you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So obviously, Medicare and Medicaid are both government programs. Um, Medicare is generally for people the age 65 and older. 
Um, and then Medicaid is for low-income persons. They're generally state-by-state -state programs. Both Medicare and Medicaid partner with outside companies. So with Medicare, they call those like Medicare Advantage plans. Mm -hmm. And then Medicaid has these other supplemental plans. Um, I don't know what the specific term for them is, but they'll partner with outside insurance companies. And then you also, and then apart from those guys, you have the private insurance companies. So United Healthcare, Aetna, Cigna. Um, there's there's others, you know. Yeah. Uh, Blue Blue Cross Blue Shield, Blue Cross, of course. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So in terms of um, reimbursements. You, from what I understand, I mean, based upon my conversations with people in the financial side of of healthcare administration, typically like a hospital will have negotiations every I don't know one or every few years with insurance companies, and they'll have set rates for particular admissions. So you know, if somebody comes to the hospital with pneumonia mm -hmm. or COPD exacerbation or I don't know diabetic ketoacidosis there will be a fixed reimbursement for that diagnosis. Um, huh. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I go in with, um, you know, whatever, whatever it is, there's a fixed rate. It doesn't matter where I go, what city, or is that all kind of state by state? Well, um, it's, it's generally negotiated on a local basis. Okay. Um, but then, I mean, every person, there might be a primary diagnosis, but then you also have your other comorbidities. So like this guy came for the hospital for pneumonia, but also we're treating his diabetes while he's here as well. Sure. And his blood pressure. So the, the hospitalist, the doctor is supposed to, you know, list all the diagnoses and then you have your consultants. Uh, yeah. All the specialists that see the patient as well. And everybody has their diagnoses listed. And then the hospital employs um, coding specialists who read the doctor's notes and then they translate that into coding that they submit to the insurance company. So and a lot of times, another layer of uh, administration that goes oh, yeah. into it. Yeah, absolutely. Gotta, yeah, and gotta protect and those jobs. The, yeah, and those coders <laughs> will. Um, if you're a hospitalist, so the inpatient doctor, you'll you'll they'll bug you um, if because if you don't phrase the diagnosis properly. Uh, then then doesn't get reimbursed properly exactly so <laughs> example i'll give you is um you can't say congestive heart failure you have to say systolic or diastolic congestive heart failure which are generally uh, two types different. of heart failure yeah, sure. you have to say like what the ejection fraction of them there is which is just the strength with which the heart pumps out the blood um it's it's like a number <laughs> like 45 percent uh, um, so the, they'll, they'll kind of ping you to, to get these, to get these diagnoses right so they can submit it to the insurance company for reimbursement. And then the insurance company will, will take a look at that, uh, those claims and they'll reimburse the hospital a certain percentage, you know, and then right. the same thing happens in the, in the, um, the outside, the, the outpatient world where you'll, um, You'll see the patient, you'll list all your diagnoses, and then you have to code the visit. So um, example, in the whole coding is, it's so complex. It's a whole other world you have to learn on top of medicine. So it's probably like another yeah. language. It's another language. So um, there's different types of, of codes for, for outpatient hospital, outpatient um, doctor's visits, like 
99213 visits, 99214. There, there's whole, these numbers you have to memorize. And then you submit, you, you select it based on the complexity of the care you deliver. And then you submit to the insurance company and then they, and then they give you back some percentage. You know, I was talking to um, our, our residency clinics practice manager the other day and she was telling us how like, you know, they might submit a $212 charge to the insurance company, but they only get like 75 bucks in payment. So, so where do they make up the rest? Um, or do they just don't? Or they build a client, build well, a patient? So our our clinic is um, actually loses money. Loses yeah. like we. I mean, she told me we lose probably forty or fifty thousand bucks every month. But the parent company of the clinic doesn't mind because we're like a supplement to the hospital. Right. So um, the goal is to keep patients out of the hospital. I was gonna say it's like almost like a money. loss leader, right? Like even though we're losing money, it's worth having it because our profitable business performs better. Yeah, yeah. If you can While keep we have that, yeah. if you can keep some of these patients out of the hospital, it can maybe it has some benefit overall um, bottom line. So now with Medicaid, that is for low income. And you I'm a, I guess you have to do some kind of test asset test or something to prove that you qualify for it or whatever. Yeah. But do you know that when they come in the hospital? I mean, I know there's laws that no, you can't turn away patients. And to be honest, I, I wonder what your feel on that is. If we had a free market, uh, doctors are people who generally, I mean, at least in my opinion, and you might laugh at this, I don't know, but generally dedicate their entire lives to helping people. Um, in a free market, I'm sure there would certainly be instances of patients being turned away, especially by certain doctors who are in high demand. But I do believe there would be a fit for them somewhere. And I do believe there would be plenty of free medical care. Um, but my question is, when someone comes in the hospital, you have no idea if they're covered or not, or if you're going to get paid for your services or not. How does that go? I mean, you just don't even ask, or are you not allowed to ask? Well, yeah, I mean, hospitals cannot turn away patients, like by law. There is a law called EMTALA, um, E-M-T-A-L-A, which is the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act. So it basically says that hospitals or an emergency room cannot turn away a patient um, regardless of ability to pay. They have to be evaluated by a physician. If they necessitate their health condition, necessitates admission to the hospital, they cannot be turned away. You cannot dump them on another hospital, you know, by like transferring to another hospital. You cannot um, tell them, hey, leave this ER and go to the ER at the hospital down the street. Um, why Why is, is that just because it could be an emergency they need treatment now? Um, um, because if you're over, if you're at capacity, why couldn't you say, we're full, go somewhere else? <laughs> I mean, that just sounds crazy to me. Yeah, so um, the only condition upon which you could transfer somebody to another hospital is if they need a higher level of care or a certain specialist is not available at your hospital. So um, the hospital I work at, there's two other hospitals nearby in our area that are owned by the same parent company. Okay. And and our hospital has obstetrics gynecology, whereas one of the other ones doesn't. So if, say, I don't know, the hypothetical, a 25-year-old girl is pregnant and she's having vaginal bleeding, that hospital, the ER at that hospital 
will transfer the patient to us. Right. Um, but that's only if there's some specialists that they can't, that they can't, um, they don't have access to there, which is some general higher level, higher level care. And they do this to prevent, and you can't tell a patient to go to another ER somewhere else because they do this to prevent hospitals from dumping sure. patients on one another. Sure, sure. Um, so basically you have to treat the patient. Um, really, you don't even know the patient's insurance status. I mean, I could, I can look it up. It, it's vi- readily visible, but it's not really a concern. You just, you just get a call from the ER and say, hey, you have a patient that you and need to admit. you go work. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. There's generally two types of doctors that admit patients to the hospital. We there's the hospitalists that mm-hmm. are the doctors that work for the hospital or a, a group of a group contracted by the hospital. But in general, they just work for the hospital and they are they have, they're salaried. They mm-hmm. um, exclusively work in the hospital. And then you have more like community physicians who are like primary care primary care doctors out in the community. Sure, and they will have their own population of patients mm-hmm. and when their patients go to the hospital and need to be admitted the er doctor will call them and say hey your patient is here i need to admit them and then and then they'll come in and they'll manage their own patients but oh, those okay. patients will generally be insured because they have a primary care doctor right so and then a primary care doctor you know takes their insurance so they have an established relationship but the hospitalist will take all of the uninsured patients, all of the Medicaid patients, and so forth. All so the patients essentially, out of town. The, the hospitalist shows up to work that day, and you deal with whatever patients are there. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if, you know, if there's a patient from some other state or city and doesn't have his PCP nearby, then then they'll go to the hospitalist. So they basically take what's left over. Right. So do you think outside of, uh, you know, the law that you mentioned, the, I guess the EMTLA, that hospitals would like be dumping, try to dump patients on each other? Like it doesn't. I do. I I definitely think that's possible. Um, If, if hospitals were required to admit patients, but they could send to other hospitals instead, then in that scenario, yeah. But what Mtala does in effect is it allows patients to um, allows them to, you know, if, if they don't take care of their medical issues outside the hospital, you know, they're not following with their doctor, they're not taking their medicine. They wait till things get really bad and they show up in the ER, you know, and then they have to be admitted. I mean, I've seen patients who are, for example, who have bad, really bad diabetes. And when you get really bad diabetes, and it's in advanced stages, you can get gangrenous ulcers on your legs. Yeah. Um, you know, you'll lose sensation in your legs. And so, you know, I've seen a patient who, you know, she wasn't taking her insulin. She, I mean, for one reason or another, maybe she couldn't afford it, or maybe she was in general non-compliant. And then her, you know, her, she was starting to develop ulcers on her legs and then she, she had to be admitted and had to get, you know, surgery to, you know, remove these necrotic ulcers. So it, it kind of creates a system where people don't take care of their routine medical issues and then they, they let things get so bad that they have to be admitted. You know, they have to show up in the ER and then they get free care that way. But it's almost like, you know, waiting for a problem to get really, really bad and then treating it in the most expensive manner possible. Yeah, it's interesting because it, it kind of takes away that um, 
the responsibility from yourself, like you said, just to like just take care of it early because you're not dealing with the the actual cost of your poor decision making. And and on top of that too, just the general idea of hospitals just like turning people away. It's like I don't know of many businesses um, otherwise that are like pushing customers out of their <laughs> buildings. Yeah, normally they're trying to do whatever they can to maximize. Well, uh, I could play some devil's advocates, and I'm, I'm sure this is what you would get. It's like you know, if someone who uh, obviously has no money walks into a Maserati dealer, and Maserati dealer is going to say, "Beat it, go somewhere else." Yeah. Uh, these, are, these are people that can't afford to buy the product. Yes, exactly. But they need that product being healthcare. Uh, so how do you think or do you think a market could handle it better? Yeah. Well, going back to the MTALO for a second, it does create a situation where hospital bills are so expensive because so much of – I mean if you're the person with insurance, part of your insurance goes to subsidize – the people who get free care. Right. There's a lot of people in every hospital. There's a lot of people who are just charity cases. The hospital writes it off and then they make it up by charging the insured patients and the Medicare right. patients more. Hmm. So generally, the you know you have the uninsured patients, the Medicaid patients that do not reimburse the hospital sufficiently, and so they make up the margins elsewhere. So it, that's part of why the cost is so expensive. Um, so you're asking me, Slappy, if I think that markets can be more effective in healthcare than yeah i mean absolutely but there's not any one quick fix i mean i, I, I don't think, i believe that yeah totally believe that i mean i think mtala should be repealed simply because i don't think you can you can't go to like a to the gap and grab a t-shirt and then say oh i can't afford to pay for it but i'm going to keep the shirt anyway but you can do that for medical care in a hospital you can <laughs> You can you can receive treatment and not have to right. pay for it. Right, and you, um, can't, you can't take it back. <laughs> yep, I'd get rid of um, I'd get rid of prescri- um, not, I'd get rid of prescriptions and make all medications over the counter. Now, how do you think the market? If you do, you have ideas on how they could handle that? Because you know what people will be saying is like, then people will just yeah. be buying Percocets all day and you know popping perks. Uh, well, how how do you think a market would handle that? Do you think you'd go to your doctor, your doctor would recommend you take something and then you just go buy it? Yeah, yeah. I think I think that medicine should be purely the just recommendations. I don't think physicians should act as gatekeepers. Yeah. And a lot of do- every doctor that you tell this to will disagree with me. But <laughs> but because that's how they make their money. Right. They make their money off of being gatekeepers in medicine. Sure. Um and a lot of people can't afford their medicine. Or rather, they don't get their medicine because they can't afford to see the doctors. So there's nobody to prescribe them the medicine that they need. And so they end up going without it. Right. And that's another population that ends up in the emergency room. Um, yeah, so that's a prescription. So basically turn every medication into an over-the-counter medication. Um, another another huge issue. So before, which I we, think- before we jump off, I, I, I still want to kind of peek into that issue a little bit go, making everything over the counter like like a slap you said like with percocets do you think that it would be like more on the pharmacist to try to like figure out or help help the pay like if someone walks in and just is like yeah i'm gonna buy uh you know 800 pills of percocet um how do you think that or, or just like general i mean i don't want to call it, well there's, there's plenty yeah there's plenty of yeah. drug abuse uh you know potential 
on prescription well, drugs. Well, people get all over the street, yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's certainly true. Yeah. I mean, it's just like the war on drugs. I mean, should should we have, should people be allowed to purchase cocaine, heroin, LSD? Yeah. Or should it be a tightly controlled thing that the government prohibits? Right. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, no arguments here. But yeah. It just, yeah, just trying to throw out what, what people may, um, you know, like that, if I, when, when I talk to people about uh, being an ANCAP or whatever, and yeah. those are always the things that come up. Well, what about you just want anyone to go in and buy heroin? It's like, yeah. uh, I want to, I don't well, want to I mean, throw them in a cage if they do. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's what things like, I mean, the opiates, that's what they're, they're heroin. They're yeah. the same, um, the morphine same, and yeah, the chemical. Yeah. yeah. Um, they're basically oral forms of heroin. And that's why, you know, we hear about the opiate um, crisis a lot lately. I mean, I don't, I don't have any evidence to back this up, but I suspect a lot of it is people that used to do heroin are just are just taking Percocets now, or Norco, or you know, one of these other op- opiate medications. That that's what I think is happening. That's just one drug being substituted for another. Right. Yeah. Well, it, it's like some, and I think this is going to be the theme for a lot of stuff we talk about because, like you said, there's not one silver bullet. There's a lot of issues, but. I mean, you do you do away with the war on drugs. You let uh, you know cannabinoids and and things from marijuana start being used instead of these her- like synthetic heroin. They're literally heroines or these opiates mm-hmm. out there. And I think you <laughs> that problem kind of fixes itself. Fixes itself because I mean, I know if you talk to heroin addicts. They don't always love being heroin addicts, right? Like, and too, how many? And and to the like, I think there's a, a case to be made that the opposite happens too. Like what you said with heroin users, a lot of them get started by getting hooked on prescription drugs. Yeah, it's it's yeah, really absolutely. really nasty. Yeah, I mean, I'm I, I do think that there was a role for these Percocets and and similar medications, just because I mean, you know, and morphine Dilaudid, just because you know, for post-op patients that are in mm-hmm. severe pain. Mm-hmm. They they need something a little stronger than Tylenol. Yeah, absolutely. Right. You know, so and but, so yeah, like I, I agree. I think there would be a need for it. Um, here's a question on the same topic: Do you think, given the way the system is today, do you think there is, and maybe you don't want to say, or maybe you don't know, but do you think there's over over prescribing of drugs to kind of be safe? Like better be safe than sorry. Don't want a malpractice lawsuit, or uh, um, or you get paid for prescribing, so we'll prescribe a little more. Do you think that happens? I happens? don't. Yeah, I, I don't quite agree. I don't. I don't. I'm. You're not actually paid for prescribing, so I don't really kind of bind a lot of the conspiratorial stuff here. Mm-hmm. What happens is it's sort of a, a too many cooks in the kitchen problem. So you know, you're you're you'll have. You know, your primary care doctor might start you on a medication for your elevated cholesterol, like a statin, and then a blood pressure medication. And then what happen is, you know, you're also seeing a urologist because you have, I don't know, an enlarged prostate. So he'll start you on something like Flomax to help you pee. And then guess what? You're also seeing a cardiologist because, I don't know, maybe you had a heart attack four years ago, and he starts you on, I don't know, a, a beta blocker, which is another blood pressure medicine, but it's a little better in, you know, people with coronary artery disease. And he might start you on, you know, another medication to lower your risk for a repeat heart attack. And so you're seeing like four different doctors and then you go to the hospital once for, you know, I don't know, a 
an asthma exacerbation, and then they start you on albuterol. And then what happens is all these medications just get piled up from these different sources, and they get continued, and then they just they don't they don't go away once they get start they get added to your list of meds. So, is that why all those drug commercials they say like tell your doctor what other medications you're on? <laughs> yeah, that partially. <laughs> what a what a good primary care doctor should do is routinely try. I mean, I I try to do it, but it's it's easier said than done. Is try to get rid of the unnecessary meds, mm-hmm. but. But all, a, lot, a lot of patients just have a lot of medical issues. They have diabetes. They have high blood pressure. They have high cholesterol. They've had heart attacks. They have COPD because they spent a lifetime smoking. So you have like if you have you know one or two medications treating each of these things, eventually they're on a dozen things. You know, yeah, and I think because I know I've been I've gone to the doctors before. And it felt, and I don't want to like sound like I'm being critical of the entire industry because this is just my, <clears throat> sorry, my, my single singular experiences. Um, and also I'm might be not in my lane since I'm, you know, not don't have any medical expertise, <laughs> but like, I felt like, you know, you go and I say, oh, I've got this issue and it's like, all right, we're going to try you on this medication. It's like, well, wait, <laughs> what about like trying to diagnose? And then, cause I was on, um, eventually got, diagnosed with migraines which i kind of knew i had but first went mm-hmm. with uh moxiclavin to see if it was like an infection and then steroids and then got a uh, cat scan to make sure that i didn't have like a you know brain tumor crushing my skull or something yeah and finally got sent to the uh to the specialist who put me on uh like an imitrex type thing yeah yeah, uh, but like, yeah yes and at no point um, did I ever feel like it was anything other than just like, well, we'll just treat you with medicine instead of like trying to figure out what's going on. Um, like, I, I don't even know what kind of question that, like how to make that. Yeah, question, no, I mean, do, yeah, you're trying to, are is we that your perception? Like, what, yeah, yeah, I guess that's kind of like my perception of how, how it goes down for me a lot of times. And I, I want you to like, tell me that. Uh, you just kind of had a bad doctor or something, or, or I don't know. Well, I mean, it, or is that the, the only, way. or is that like really the only way that you can kind of do it? Like you, like it's kind of, I don't know. Well, I mean, at the risk of sounding like critical, the people who like bitch about doctors prescribing too much, like, oh, doctors just want to throw a pill at everything. Like, what do you expect? Like, there's <laughs> you're practicing medicine. <laughs> like, I'm practicing medicine. It's it's like blaming a waiter for bringing you food. Like fair enough. <laughs> at the end of the day, I mean, a doctor. There's okay. What are the things you could treat people with? You can, you know, if they have pain or something, you got physical therapy. There's um, surgery. There's I don't know joint injections or like trigger point injections, and then there's pills. I mean, what else can doctors do? I mean, you can, you know, sometimes I've seen people on Twitter complain that doctors don't counsel people on diet and stuff more or exercise. It's like, why do you need a doctor to tell you to eat healthy? <laughs> like, like no, that's not a secret. Right. You know, you don't, you don't need a doctor to tell you to hit the gym. Yeah. So, I, I mean that, uh, that I do have mirrors. They work yeah. well too. <laughs> well, part of it too, is it like help yourself out? <laughs> exactly. Or, or, you know, if, if you're on going on like 15,000 medications, cause you're seeing 15,000 different doctors and maybe you open your mouth. 
and say something. Hey, by the way, I'm on these other medications or these other things. Is this going to cause an issue? Because if, you know, the doctor, you know, he might ask. and But, like, if if you know information that might be relevant to his decision making, then don't hide it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just think, I mean, it's not so much a, an issue with younger persons, but, you know, people that get up in their 60s and 70s and 80s, by that point, they start to have multiple medical problems. And they need medications to address each one of them. There's no one pill that fixes it all. Right. But another issue with this is kind of how the medical, the electronic medical records don't really sync well between hospitals and doctor's offices and pharmacies. So you kind of have to, you have to figure out what patients and what medications a patient is on simply by asking them. And so a lot of people are totally clueless. I have a question on that because in the, in the nursing center, you, you mentioned HIPAA. And yeah. how the medical records are not synced. Now, in my industry, when we do life insurance or disability insurance or long-term care, we have to get a HIPAA authorization signed, which is essentially authorizing us to go get their doctor records. Um, and that's really my experience with HIPAA is we get this form signed. We have to have this form in order to see the records. And anyone who wants to see those records, be it the underwriter at the insurance company or, or the producer, has to have their own HIPAA authorization signed, which is really kind of a pain but i i can see that that you know some guy applying for insurance doesn't want me to have his medical records and passing them out to his producer his agent who uh he may not want the agent to know what's in his medical records uh for whatever reason so i i understand why you would need the authorization but hipaa is a big issue in the medical world and what do you go like what is that about i mean how do you handle hipaa how does that affect your day like what goes on there because i that i'm totally clueless on it just means that that everything the technology is 20 years behind the times you're still faxing things to each other hmm. so if i like if i have to figure out you know if a patient's also seeing a cardiologist i have it's, to fax them i have to get the patient's signature and then fax that to the cardiologist, and then they fax back all of their records, and then you have to literally oh, go through it like on paper and read is their notes. Is that it's, because they're afraid like an email will get hacked? Exactly, Not, nothing yeah. is sent via email. Right. So you know, even so, yeah, everything is just fax based. Even if a patient, I wanted to give them, you know, an order for some go to to LabCorp Quest and do some labs. Mm-hmm. I can't. You're not allowed to email it to them. You have to. They either have to come huh. up, come in person to the office and pick up the lab order, or you fax it to them. Um, so what it does is it just creates mountains of paperwork. None of the systems are integrated between hospitals and clinics. Right. Uh, so you can't exactly share that. So yeah. Can, is that yeah. is that the problem that Denticoin solves? Oh, exactly. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Denticoin. It's, <laughs> yes. <laughs> they're they're. The most medical records, records on the blockchain. <laughs> I was going to say, I'll bet you you could add that to Tractor Coin, yeah. RV, cash, uh, no. whatever it is. Track- Slap. You could add medical records to that. Couldn't no. you do that on that Tractor Coin chain? We put. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how relevant uh, medical records are for Tractor Coin, cash, RV, but we do put um, like oil change records. And also, uh, you know, last time you fill up your gas tank, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, so you know when it's empty? Belt history, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Good. 
But basically, I mean, it's just the EMR systems in the U.S., the electronic medical record systems are are very user-unfriendly. Didn't Obama try to do something with that? Um, or am I, like, wrong? I, I thought I remembered hearing about records getting be, becoming electronic or there was, maybe it was in Obamacare or something. Well, or the issue isn't – the issue is that the ele- the records aren't electronic. It's that every cis- every provider, be it the hospital, your primary care doctor, your cardiologist, everyone has a different system, and they're not connected to each other. So, you know, as a primary care doctor, it'd be helpful if I knew what the cardiologist is doing, but I can't. So I have to fax them, and they have to fax me back, which huh. is. Which yeah, just creates pain. loads. Yeah. Of, yeah, it creates loads of paperwork. Yeah. Uh, so here's something for all you doctors out there, uh, being in the insurance industry, when your patient comes in and you ask him a question like, "Are you feeling stress or anxiety?" Um, and he says yes because my job or whatever is busy or my family. Could you please add another note to say like? normal anxiety because that goes to the underwriter and then they put all kinds of exclusions on it because like this guy has an anxiety problem and then we go back to the client and the client goes what are you talking about and then we have to say it's in your records anxiety is checked so being somewhat oh yeah sarcastic be careful about the notes you put in that file because your your patients when they apply for insurance just at the bottom, just put, he's in ship shape, everything's great, and there should be no issues getting insurance. <laughs> and that'll make my life a lot easier. Well, is it just listed in, like, the, the text of the history, or... Yeah, well, sometimes diagnosis? there's more notes. No, sometimes there's diagnosis. Sometimes it'll say, like, um, you know, you're, go, you're going back through the records, and it'll go, why is he here? Um, and it'll it'll write something like, um, I don't know, is be, feeling anxiety with work and new baby or just got married oh, yeah. or a house. And just even just that little thing, even if there's no prescription um, or I, I don't know if it has to be an official diagnosis or, or what. Um, but a lot of times underwriters will be like, well, it was back in uh, December of 2019. He is the first note we see he's feeling anxiety. This could be an issue, um, which is more on the underwriter than the doctor uh-huh. just trying to take care of his patient. I mean, unless it was a formal diagnosis that they're being treated for with some medication, I, I, yeah, that seems very strict. Uh, it is. It's crazy, actually. It's insane. Um, but that's a insurance thing with underwriters that I have wow. issues with, not doctors. Yeah. Oof. That's a bad deal. Um, so I'm, yes. I, I might have missed this when we were talking about the EMRs, and you mentioned that there's a, like each – each uh, insurance company or, or whatever system they they their own systems don't talk to each other very well. Yeah, is, is that because I might have missed if you said this, but is that because of the HIPAA stuff that that they can't? You're legally not allowed to like talk very well, clearly yeah, about I mean, that kind of I stuff. I think I think that's why every everything has to be signed off by the patient before you can request the records. You have to get their signature. That's why the you know you can't just be sharing records between offices, um, or why you can't have integrated medical records is because the risk of leaking those records would produce a massive you know legal liability thanks to HIPAA. Okay. Right, because there's there's very stiff penalties for um for leaking records. Ironically, there is one system that is the exception to all this. Can you guess what it is? Um, one hospital system. 
VA? Yep, yep, yeah. Slappy got it. <laughs> got it. Yeah, yeah, and, and, yeah, because the VA is, I mean, as a government agency, is effectively... Uh, Can't un- do wrong. Unsuable. Yeah. And they have had numerous hacks in their... That's, in their, um, that's crazy. In their history, yeah. All right, so here's another thing that, that gets brought up. Uh, maybe switching gears a little bit, but uh, we hear high costs of med- medical care due to malpractice and malpractice insurance. Um, as a libertarian, I think malpractice is something that uh, doctors probably should be liable for if they're doing something egregious or negligent or, uh, you know, that they shouldn't be doing. How This is going to be a broad question. But how much malpractice suits that, you know, go to trial or whatever or get settled are frivolous in your opinion? And I know that's probably impossible to tell without having any kind of data or any kind of guideline. But just as a yeah. general feeling, like when you're treating patients, are you concerned about that? Like maybe this guy's going to try to sue me and get money and then I'll have to settle because it's not worth going to court, whatever. I think it's a, non, a non-negligible percentage is frivolous because – Obviously, like, you know, if you imagine like a courtroom scenario, you've got a, you know, a, a patient, somebody had died or yeah. know, maybe they're, you know, paralyzed because of what is perceived to be an accident or, or poor care by the doctor. But really, there's more to it than the, than that. Um, it it kind of, it's, it's very much specialty dependent. Like um, one of the really well-known areas that, that you have a lot of legal liability, malpractice liability is is OB-GYN. Yep. They have a, they have a there's their malpractice rates go through the roof because you know I know an OB who retired because his rates are is stupidly high. Yeah. So he just retired. Another one, I mean, you know, I, I one of the areas of medicine I have a lot of respect for is ER doctors because an ER doctor is is the front line of medicine. Like they have yeah. to they have to see everything from children to adults. They have to, you know, do a lot Gunshot of shot wounds to yeah. a guy who's got a cold. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if they're a trauma, ER, yeah, gunshot wounds. Sure. Um, there, so that there's a lot of legal liability there. There's, um, it, it's just, it's just, it's a field where if you make a mistake, there can be very severe consequences. Whereas in most other, industries that's not true you know if a waiter screws up an order no big deal right so right right well, um, yeah. i mean i'll, I'll give stakes you are high example. as a doctor i mean this was this was um a case i saw probably two months ago i was on icu there was a woman who was admitted overnight for stroke like symptoms and the doctor saw her in the er um Apparently, her she had some weakness on the right side of her body. She had like that facial droop and was slurring her words. And um, they, when the doctor at the ER saw her at that time, the symptoms were not particularly severe, and they had already been present for I think nine hours or something. So she was out of what we call the window for a medication called TPA, which is a clot buster. Um, and so they didn't, they didn't push the medication and then her symptoms got worse overnight after she was already admitted. So by the time I saw her the next morning, she clearly had the signs of a stroke. Mm. 
and um, and the and so because they didn't give that medication, the ER doctor is now liable to be sued. Um, so it's, I don't know. It's it's kind of hard to say. Yeah. It it so it's it's just it's just a it's an area where if you make a mistake you can you even can if have, it's a mistake that so I I don't know um, what the hell the law was do this what if the like in hindsight it's a mistake but at the time given the doctor's information he was doing the best he could which yeah. I imagine happens most of the time uh, the doctor is doing what he thinks he should do, what is best for the patient. And then hindsight 2020, it didn't take, or the medication was wrong or mixed with something he was not aware of. Um, like yes. cases like that going forward, because my, my general feeling for doctors is that they want to provide good care for their patients. Otherwise they wouldn't dedicate their entire lives to do yeah. it. Yeah. There are, uh, there are, there are some lazy doctors out there. I'm sure. Just like anything else. Yeah. Um, but I'm saying like, generally, generally speaking, I, I yeah. maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> maybe you, you're in the lunchroom. With them. Most of them are trying to do a good job. Um, I just think yeah, there can be some significant consequences if, if, you know, you make the wrong decision and, mm -hmm. um, but I, it's just one of those things where you, yeah, if, if you slip up just a little bit, you can, you can, and especially in the ER where you see dozens of people in a given day and you're, you know, at any given time, you might be right. actually taking, you know, while they're seeing that patient, they're also taking care of another six or seven guys yeah. in other rooms. So they're constantly multitasking. So you, 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 you don't have a lot of time on your hands. You have to make your decisions very quickly. And, and, and I know it's tough. So yeah, ER and OB/GYN are, are definitely two areas, but the the issue with with medical malpractice is that you know you're not always being tried by a jury of your peers; you're being tried by uh, laymen. To say about that for sure. Yeah. So <laughs> so I mean, sometimes you wonder if the layman can can kind of understand what's going on exactly, and do they understand what the actual standard of practice is? Well, the I, answer is no. <laughs> yeah, I think that I think that's a really fair and important point because I just know in my industry, you know, as an engineer, I work in the petrochemical stuff, and every once in a while, places that I work or places like I that I work at end up in the news for some sort of issue that happens, and just <laughs> like the average person that reads it and and is talking about it just has absolutely no concept of anything that we do or what standard protocols are or any of that and it's all oh those guys are evil and just out to make a buck and they took shortcuts and were lazy and are, and are bad and and i can only imagine um how similar that is for you know, but, so but a doctor yeah, who's people like don't trying... understand engineering doesn't mean that the engineer wasn't bad yep so what so what in medicine <laughs> was led to is <laughs> You've probably heard the term defensive medicine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of testing done for just purely because even if you know that it's probably nothing. It's trying to cover your ass. Oh, call. Oh, yeah. And you'll see this happen every day in every ER. You know, you somebody will come in and say, oh, I have a headache. They get a CAT scan of the head. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Is that what happened to me then? <laughs> because... Yeah, I know, because if, if the ER doctor misses a brain tumor or, you know, a bleed or something, then, then, then their license is on the line. 
So there's a lot of unnecessary testing that goes in just to rule out um, things that are unlikely. And, and, you know, even that goes back to the fact that people don't pay for their own health care. You know, if people, if, if, if you went to an ER and you said, I have a headache, and the doctor said, okay, well, to be safe, you should get a CAT scan of the head, but it's a thousand bucks. If your insurance is paying for it, or if it, you're uninsured and it's being written off by the hospital, they're absorbing the cost of it, then you don't have to, you know, then you say, well, why not? I'll, do, I'll just do it. Yeah, might as well, right? Throw it yeah. on there. So a big, por- so a big pro- part of the problem there is that is the third-party problem, the third-party payer problem. Yeah, we actually, when we take our kids to the doctor, or I I rarely go to the doctor, to be honest, but I always ask the price just for the hell of it, just to see what they say. Yeah. And, and I've never gotten an answer. It's always, I'll get back to you. Um because yeah. I know they're not going to know. Because I, as, as I understand, like doctors, maybe you're trained or taught this in med school, but it's not about the price. It's about the care. So don't even worry about that stuff. Just go do your job. Yeah. Well, what what they do do is um, they have like, at least in terms of like screening for things like breast cancer or colonoscopy, they do have recommendations. Like you don't start mammograms typically until 40 years old because even, you know, could a woman in her 30s get breast cancer? They could, but the incidence is so low. It's not likely. Yeah, it's not likely. Colonoscopies, you generally don't start till you're 50 unless you have family history of it. Still got a um, few years. Because colon cancer is, yeah, is, gen- is relatively uncommon under the age of 50. Lung cancer, you generally don't start screening until 55 if they're a smoker. Um, oh, um, you know the PSA test? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah prostate that's prostate is, right yeah exactly we don't even use that anymore unless Not really unless they're symptomatic i we don't routinely do it anymore just because there are too many uh false positives huh. Huh. so yeah too many people were just IPSAs. basically yeah they were having to do um unnecessary workups so if you're symptomatic yeah then it's worth yeah, checking you know, you know if you're having you know, urinary difficulties or something it's it's then you might get it, but not otherwise, not as a routine test. So that's that's kind of how they do incorporate uh, cost consciousness. But yeah, you're right. There's there's very little cognizance of what the costs of things are. Um, another uh, thing I'll bring. Are you familiar with these? Like, I know Tom Woods. It was. Years ago, a couple years ago, he had a doctor on that was out somewhere in the Midwest, maybe, who does like a concierge service. Are you familiar with that kind of practice or do you have any idea what I'm talking about where essentially the guy almost charges like a gym membership? And so he limits the number of patients he can have at any time, at any month or whatever. And maybe yeah. you pay 50 bucks a month for an adult, 30 bucks a month for a kid or whatever. And then you have access to the doctors and he does the prescribing and he negotiates his own prices. And he was talking about how some drugs are way cheaper if he goes direct to the supplier uh than if he goes i guess through the pharmacy system or whatever i I don't i don't really understand that side of the system but are you familiar with those kind of uh practices and if you think that's a viable thing or what the Mm -hmm. deal is with that so there's concierge medicine which is like for the wealthy they'll have like a doctor that will pick up his phone any time of the day and 
and will sh- you know if you're in the hospital show up at your bedside right um and then there's also direct primary care which is where you kind of pay like i don't know 100 bucks a month okay and maybe that's what i'm talking yeah, about yeah that's another another um it's i mean these are both very good developments but direct primary care is one where you just yeah you pay a, like a subscription fee and you know you can see your doctor whenever you want in their office but is it's that not I was going to say, is that talked about? Like, are, are, is, do you think do you think more of them will pop up, or do you think that's something that like it's not really talked about in med school? Guys don't really know it. People don't really want to go into it unless they have a certain bend, like a libertarian bend it's, or whatever. It's definitely positive. I, I've actually, I'm definitely looking into those kinds of opportunities right now. For okay. Job, but there still are disadvantages. Namely, if you have to refer out to a specialist. Or you gotta have insurance. You guys, they still have to have insurance. At yeah, the I, I guess they would try to do like, I, I, I imagine there would, they would tr- definitely have catastrophic care, and I, I don't know all the health insurance laws, but even for like things that aren't catastrophic that have to get referred out would have to get paid for. Exactly. So I mean, if you refer to a specialist like a cardiologist, right. the card I mean, is the cardiologist going to going to take you know flat fees as well? Right. And what about for medications? Is are they you know are they going to pay for medications out of pocket? It's right. unlikely. Um, so I know. think if we had a market for insurance, there would they would fill that need. Uh, but unfortunately, that's also highly regulated and what they can do. Yeah. So I mean, the ideally, what insurance would be, I think, and Slappy, you can probably give more insight to this. Is it should be a I don't know something like a, a high deductible plan. Mm-hmm. With relatively low premiums that you reserve exclusively for things like when you end up in the hospital or if you get some unforeseen diagnosis like cancer, like, you know, you're diagnosed with prostate cancer. Yeah. And that's what you reserve it for. But your day to day expenses are, you know, your doctor's visits, your labs, your routine prescriptions are all out of pocket. I, I mean, I think that would be a much better model for containing costs mm-hmm. um another thing and and you put this in your notes this um certificate of need laws before a hospital can be built it has to prove need for services i think that's got to be a huge issue in the cost of care that essentially you have monopoly power on a given not not really i mean i can choose to drive farther to a, the next hospital but someone's not allowed by law to open up a hospital um, yeah, so these, these uh, tend to be local laws. They're yeah. state-based. They'll, um, you can't, a, a new hospital can't be built without going to the, I don't know, the county commission or something and, and seeking their approval. And so a lot of times these county commissioners will be, will be, um, lobbied by the opposing hospital corporations yeah, to deny that, that license. I would have to imagine that those existing hospitals uh, would be pretty politically connected and powerful. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, no, we, not too we, thrilled with someone open up shop. I mean, next we, to we have a name for that system, too. It's called fascism. <laughs> they <come> yeah. <laughs> like, Give certificates yep. to who can operate. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. In fact, I'm looking up right now. If you look up the definition of certificate of need laws, C-O-N, C-O-N programs, so certificate of need programs, aim to control healthcare costs 
by restricting duplicative services <laughs> and determining whether new capital expenditures meet a community need. And I, I like that because it's so ridiculous. Uh, control yeah. healthcare costs by, by limiting, by restricting access, <laughs> which by restricting duplicative services. In other words, restricting competition. Yes, exactly. it's like it's like saying that you know if I have a a Denny's and an IHOP in my town, that's duplicative. Right, so and and he'd get rid of one of them. Yeah, and they're going to charge is, more when they build the uh, the Denny's next to the IHOP because they got to do that capital <laughs> expenditure. So watch out, they're going to charge you way more for pancakes at Denny's. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And you mentioned earlier in the episode, the plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery type stuff is not covered by insurance. And last time I looked at the chart, which was a long time ago, even in nominal costs since the 1990s, a lot of services have decreased in price over that time. Nominal, not even in real terms. In real terms, all the services have. But there's, I mean, that's, that's, pretty incredible that in 1995 you might pay ten thousand dollars for something that today you would pay seven thousand dollars or that's just a random number thrown out there but um even in nominal terms the price has dropped because we have uh, a market for cosmetic surgery Mm -hmm. and i think if you i do think that if you um applied that to other services we would see prices come down yep cosmetic surgery lasik eye surgery yeah, we, um, talk, we talked about that before on here. Last time I went to the eye doctors, I saw this stuff about uh, orthokeratherapy, where she put contact lenses in, these special lenses that you put in when, while you sleep, and then you pop them out during the day, and, and it reshapes your eye so you can wear it, you know, I guess every like for while you sleep. And I asked the doctor about that, and he pulled out a sheet and said, "All right, this is how this is exactly how much it costs. These are the plans that we do." And he's like, "You know, it's because it's not covered by insurance, so we have to you know, make it uh, competitive for people to to want to buy." So it's it's pretty uh, pretty amazing what happens when you don't have that third party uh, payer, yeah, kind of in the middle of stuff. Now they're not perfect because, and they still have you know another cause of. Increased prices in healthcare is occupational licensing. Mm-hmm. Almost everybody involved in it has to have years of schooling. Um, some of it may be excessive, to my in my opinion. Yeah, how how long um, do you have to be in school to be a doctor? You to have to go through after the age of eighteen, after graduate high school, you have to have pretty much, um, with very few exceptions here and there, four years of undergrad four years in med school, and then somewhere between three to seven years of residency. I think Doogie Hauser would disagree. Yeah, I don't know how he got started so early. Um, He just was a better doctor than you. So that adds up, right? So so when you, I mean, frankly, when you're paying your doctor, part of that cost is going towards the years and years of schooling they had to pay for. Now, I think it's debatable how much of it is useful. In my opinion, undergrad, I had a great time in college. (laughs) (laughs) Went to a lot of parties, Mm -hmm. but a lot of football games. But, I mean, in terms of whether it is useful to me in my current career, none of it is. All those pre-med classes you had to take were completely useless. Like, no doctor is ever using organic chemistry (laughs) or, or physics or even intro biology, it's, it's, it's nonsense. Well, I, I, have, I have a friend of mine that 
is a dentist now and like his undergrad he just i forget what it was it was either i think he started as like geography and then ended with uh anatomy it was just like yeah i just need something that looks good to get into dental school didn't really, oh, really? Matter, matter what it was and it it had, didn't have that much to do with uh, whenever he, with dentistry, and I know yeah, dentistry is most... a little bit different than than uh, other fields, but this, this same things kind of applies. Yeah, most pre med kids do something like I don't know microbiology, mm-hmm. just because it overlaps with the pre med requirements. Sure, but then then you got med school, right? So you've already gone through four years of college. Med school, the first two years are you know book book learning tests and whatnot and then your third and fourth year are actual clinical rotations which is like uh i i mean i imagine that's almost like a apprenticeship yeah yeah exactly and then um so i mean the the third and fourth year are actually quite useful because you rotate through all the various specialties mm-hmm. well especially a third year the fourth year by that point you're gearing up for residency and applying so you're actually doing audition rotations at your, um, you know, residency programs that you want to end up in. Um, but the first and second year, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff you learn that you don't need to know. Um, especially if you become a specialist, right? So if you become, let's say you end up as a psychiatrist, well, all that time you spent in the anatomy lab was useless. Right. And all that time you spent in histology, which is, the science of studying tissue under microscopes was useless. Right. So I've actually had arguments with other family members of mine that are in medicine as well about this, but I think the concept of medical school should be done away with and mm. should be, it should be broken up into the specialties just like we have dental school and medical dental school or, um, or vet school. We should have not medical school, but, Pediatric right. school, psychiatry school, anesthesia school. There's, I don't. It, it kind of befuddles me how pediatric, psychiatry, anesthesia, surgery, um, emergency medicine, all ended up as med school, but then dentists got their own little school over there. <laughs> yeah, you're an anti-dentite too, huh? Exactly. Um, so I mean, basically, the, the, I think the education should be a lot more tailored to your specialty. Now, did I you think know, that's a. Like, I mean, go ahead, Rallo. Did you know like what you wanted? Like I know for me, for going to school for engineering, like I was mechanical engineering, and I kind of knew that's I wanted to be a mechanical engineer. But even within mechanical engineering, I mean, there's just like eighteen thousand different things you can do. So, um, and I didn't even really figure out what I wanted to do until I was working for a couple years. <laughs> so, yeah. like, is that is that something that like a lot of like, did you know what you wanted to do when you were going into medical school? Um, like, I guess how practical is that for a uh, lot of people? Or, or would they just, just kind of force their hands and then you just kind of figure it out? I'm just, I guess I'm just super indecisive. Um, so I couldn't, I ultimately when would push him to shove. I couldn't pick what I wanted to do because I felt like I get easily, um, I don't know, bored if I did any one thing too long. So then I knew it would have to end up being uh, something broad, like family or, or, or um, internal medicine, you know, something very broad specialty that covers everything. 
it's a good thing being family medicine is that you can you see a little bit of everything. I I do a little psychiatry. I do a little, do a little cardiology. I do a little pulmonology. Everything. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I I we got I got to ask. Um, I guess we're still kind of early in this pandemic, at least in the United States. Do you have an opinion on how it is being handled or how a market could handle it better or would a market handle it better? Yeah. Um, I don't really have any, any uh, particular insight into this more so than I guess, you know, whatever you're reading in the newspapers. Sure. Uh, it's, it's, it's causing a lot of fear. You know, you're seeing people in clinics and emergency rooms right now, just they're all panicky about it. So everybody wants to come in and get tested. And fortunately there are enough tests at this time. Right. But I don't, I mean, you know, people are trying to say like, Oh, this is Trump's fault. Like we don't have enough testing yet. And I don't know if you can blame it all purely on him. I mean, it's just, it's a very unique situation. Um, I don't know if anybody could have anticipated this. Yeah. And that's, I I mean, I think even just, sorry to cut you off, but even in a market, I mean, you can't really anticipate these things. There would probably be at least a shortage for a while. Yeah. Um, But I, I I was reading an article, I think it was on reason.com about Mm -hmm. a company that developed the test back in um, February but the FDA shut them down because they couldn't do it unless it was an FDA-approved lab, mm-hmm. uh, and that's just one example of probably several. And especially if you if you got rid of these um, regulatory agencies, that would obviously incentivize more people to do things. Uh, mm-hmm. So we'd probably see a lot more. But had the FDA just approved the test, we may have had more of these tests, or or we would have had more of these tests by now. Um, so I think there's a lot of things like that that I'm not even aware of in the medical world that the fda Mm -hmm. controls and um you know like a market's not perfect it's not going to be utopia if a if something like this happened um yeah i don't know why you should require the fda's permission to sell a test right right a test right you're not you're not providing care to something you're just testing stuff (laughs) like why does the fda exactly there i mean that's another you know huge cost in medicine which maybe we didn't touch on was um prescription drug costs are pretty high because the cost of developing those drugs is astronomical because you have to jump through all the hoops that the FDA erects um, to get a drug concept to market. And that's always the people who defend patents will say, well, it costs so much to create it, and then you're going to put in all this time doing it and then not get any profits. Exactly. Patents are necessary because the development costs are so astronomical. Yeah, affixed to a problem that they created. Yeah, I, I, I spent a few uh, a little over a year in pharmaceuticals for a little bit before I went to petrochemicals. And, uh, m- man, I felt like I was working for the FDA. Like, pharmaceutical companies, there's a lot of criticism made towards them, and they deserve a lot of it. Uh, but, man, the red tape that surrounds that uh, industry is unbelievable. Uh, it was... I it it was worse than uh, nuclear red tape. Uh-huh. I did a little bit of that too. Like I, I the nuclear red tape made more sense and felt less awful 
than the pharmaceutical red tape. Oh yeah, yeah. They they couch out to the FDA to their every whim. Yeah, and that's why it was nice to leave the industry because I could be like, well, I actually feel like I'm now working for the company to mm-hmm. make a profit. I don't feel like I'm working for the FDA. Yeah, it's like yeah. the gatekeeper to avoid punishment. Yeah, I'm curious why um, more drug development doesn't move to like other countries more lax regulation. It's a good you question. Know. Yeah. Well, but even if it, huh? I guess I don't. So know. I know there was a there's a girl locally who um, has a, a brain tumor and uh, wanted to do some experimental treatment and flew down to Mexico for it. Uh, I imagine that's somewhat common. I, and I'm, I don't know why it was not. I don't know what. I don't know the details. This is a story I heard from someone. Um, so I don't know what the procedure was or what. But as, as this group of people were talking about it, people are saying, like, well, would you really want to go to Mexico? Like, And I'm thinking, well, I mean – if the other option is dying and, and, and our system here doesn't allow treatment. Yeah. Um, slappy. I'd rather, I'd rather be dead yeah, in the U S than, 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 than alive in Mexico. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, I no, but I, I don't, I imagine that. that <laughs> no, I imagine that happens fairly often and say this treatment did or maybe like I, I don't know the details, so I don't know if this is going through the process with the FDA or whoever is the regulatory body around this. Um, but say it works, and uh, would then the U like does the U.S. use foreign countries almost as like testing? Do you know that you know of? I, I don't know if you would even know that answer. Mm, yeah, I mean, I'm not really certain. I mean, I'll beat a lot of the drug development. The major corporations are all located in the U.S., right? Pfizer. Yeah. Yeah, GlaxoSmithKline or American. I think Merck is Merck German. I a believe German it is. Yeah. I know there's a huge Merck plant. I guess not too far from Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, up in uh, well, yeah. The one thing maybe. that's happening also in the American in the the pharmaceutical drug market is that a lot of the pharmaceutical companies they make a majority of their profits in the U.S. And then they sell the drugs for uh, cheaper to uh, these single-payer countries in Europe, Canada, Australia. Huh. And the reason why – so in effect, the United States subsidizes pharmaceutical drug costs the, for yeah. the rest of the world because other countries have um, – as single-payer countries, they have monopsony power. Yep. So they can artificially lower drug prices. And the only reason why this model is sustainable – is because the U.S. is where they make up their profits. <laughs> oh boy! So, so I never, those, I never thought of those, that. Which no, is, neither so, did I. I never thought of that. So <laughs> which is, the entire scheme would fall apart if we legalized drug reimportation, because what would happen is these drugs that are expensive in the U.S. but cheap everywhere else, they would basically the people would ship them out of Canada into the U.S. And because they'd make money off that, they'd arbitrage that difference in the yeah. price. And then yeah. you would see Canada and Europe, all of them would have shortages of all these drugs. 
Yeah. That's... And so you, you often hear that. They'll say, like, uh, why single payer is better? Because in the United States where there's a free market, uh, aspirin costs $10. And in the UK, it's $2. Yeah. I mean, you see, that, that's obviously I made that up. But you'll see things like that all the time. Uh, exactly, yeah. I can't so wait to use that we, now. We, yeah. sub- we subsidize all the drug prices around the world. Ah, that's incredible. I never yeah. thought of that. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these, these single-payer healthcare systems, they're able to keep costs low, quote-unquote low, because of their monopsony power. They're able to, to basically coerce suppliers into, into accepting lower charges for their services, um, which is, is not sustainable in the long run. We know that that kind of stuff eventually leads to poor quality and and the system mm-hmm. breaks down at some point. And less choice because it, it, it when there's not profit to be made, it, it makes people drop out of the market, suppliers, mm-hmm. that is. Yeah. And a lot of these, you know, in, in countries like Canada or, you know, England or whatever, these people there have supplemental private insurance company insurance plans on top of the single player pan. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I hear that all the time a lot too. It's a, it's such a mess and it's nice that, you know, when we talk about this kind of stuff, we can take it right back to first principles and it really kind of like any other time you do it, it explains things really well. You don't need to, well, it's actually uh, compl. not that it's not complicated, but like people try to, you know, pull wool over your eyes or, or whatever to say like, well, you just can't understand it with your simple supply and demand. It's like, well, actually. Well, one of the things you hear a lot and it kind of frustrates me is people say healthcare is so important because you can't <laughs> live without it. So that's why the government has to provide it, mm-hmm. which to me doesn't, it doesn't address the question because even if you died without healthcare, if there was competition, it still wouldn't. It wouldn't necessarily. It would. It would still work as a marketplace. But the reason why it doesn't work is because we don't have competition, because the competition is regulated out of existence. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like it's like saying, um, I mean, I need food to eat, but yeah. you don't need government to take care of the food market because we have competition between grocery stores and restaurants and all that stuff. And even if there's, even in a market like healthcare where admittedly there's asymmetrical information, right? The, the specialist, the doctor might know a lot more about your condition and could theoretically take advantage of you. So there's some asymmetrical information mm-hmm. there. We have asymmetrical information in other markets like. Go to I mean, the mechanic. My, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. The mechanic. I have no fucking clue how my car works. <laughs> I know I put gas in it. I know I turn a key. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, there's a there's been a bunch of times I've been pissed off at a mechanic. <laughs> you know, you take it in there and, and it's like you're, you, you need to change this. your oil yeah. gasket and yeah. it's going to be 500 bucks. Yeah. But you can still, you know, if you're not lazy, you can still shop around and ask different mechanics. And the same thing you could theoretically do in a free market healthcare system if we didn't restrict competition. Yeah, the wrath of the consumer is a powerful mechanism for making sure that people, uh, you know, give good service or products and charge decent prices. Yeah, yeah. If there was free entry 
into and out of the market. You know, if anybody could hang a shingle and call themselves a doctor, then then it would it would force doctors to be much more honest with their customers. Now, you could still have the the designation of like MDs, DOs, or all the other you know PAs, NPs. And I'm sure we would, mm-hmm. or at least some variation of it. Exactly. Well, um, as, as Tobias Funke said when he got his hair plugs, no licensing, so big savings. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Drives, I mean, whenever you don't have barriers to entry that are artificially erected, then uh, then those those margins tend to disappear. Yeah. No, that's... Uh... Milton Friedman talked about the AMA and how it was created to keep competition out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I wrote like about my I don't know my senior thesis on it <laughs> in college. Um, and when you when the AMA, I think it was the early twentieth century, they they came into effect. They passed occupational licensing for physicians, and they like in like a span of like five years they closed like two thirds of the med schools in the country. Wow. Yeah. And, and all the doctors salaries started soaring immediately. Wow. So I, I guess we're wrapping up here. Um, but one more thing I want to throw out there. Have you ever watched like old movies and I, I can't give a specific example, but the doctor does house calls all the time. Um, was that something that used to happen that I, I don't know still does. I, I don't know that, many people unless you're like on your deathbed i guess um i I don't know how much you know of the history but is that something that used to be common that is no longer common and is that because of some kind of regulation i think i mean that's what the concierge doctors do right okay they're the ones working for you know the rich and famous you know Right, right um but um i don't know if that model makes a lot of sense for most people just because a the doctor okay the doctor has to drive to the to the um, mm-hmm. patient's house so that would imply that the patient's time is more valuable than the doctor's time and which means the patient makes more than the doctor right so so there's not I mean based on current salaries the doctor is probably going to make more than most patients out there typically. So I don't know if house calls make sure. a lot of sense. It probably makes more sense for the patient to come to the doctor. And then also you have other things like you have equipment in the doctor's offices, you know, be it, you know, blood pressure cuffs and, and, you know, vital signs and te- various tests that they well, have there. So do you know why that would be the case that it, I mean, and I'm assuming like, I have no clue. I just have seen it in movies, old movies. Uh, so I imagine it's what happened. Do you know why it would have been the case that they would do that back then? Or have I just think they had less, just like a movie thing that they just put out there and whatever. I think they just had less testing back then. Yeah. Okay. You know, so you, you didn't have like as much equipment in the in the doctor's offices back then as you would today. Right. Go also, get bring your stethoscope and you're, you're, you're ready to go. Exactly. They didn't, I mean, have the internet. Yeah. they didn't have the internet for self-diagnosis. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which makes everyone a doctor. Which yes. is what we're saying. <laughs> yeah. Every time uh, anything every and anything ever ah man, I can't tell. Anytime anything is ever wrong with me and I go and Google it, I always have brain cancer. Oh, <laughs> so, sorry to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> well, well I'm the, the I'm job a of the doctor 
the job of a doctor is to, they call it differential diagnosis. They take your complaint, they ask you a bunch of questions, and in their head they're thinking of all the possibilities, and then they're one by one crossing them off. I always assume when they leave the room, they just go on WebMD and start Googling stuff. Like if you tell me, if you say I have my, I have ad- abdominal pain, in my head I'm thinking, okay, you could have a bowel obstruction, pancreatitis, gallstone, right. appendicitis, and then you go through and you ask them questions like which keep eliminating is, things, yeah, yeah. You cross things off, you know, and then eventually right. you have a, Doctor, a rough idea. Don't you see the knife sticking out of my stomach? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, so, one last question: Would you recommend our podcast to people? Absolutely not. Ah, I wanted to be doctor recommended. <laughs> no, no, yeah, no, no, absolutely would. <laughs> All right, cool. one out of one doctors recommend this podcast. One <laughs> number two of doctors. This the second best podcast after Fagcast. Uh, that's not true. Nope, nope. That is not true. Not Remember, true. We we can edit. So yeah, right. we can edit, and we and we will edit. Okay. <laughs> Actually, that takes way too much effort. Uh, we don't. Yeah, we're not going to do that. Sure. Um. Anyway, we'll put you on the spot again. Yep. Uh, and it's okay to say no. Uh, actually, it's not after you didn't uh, initially recommend our podcast. Uh, do you have a free market success story? Do I have a f- – oh, man. Well, I don't see a lot of free market in my line of work. I actually <laughs> – if, if you don't have one, I have one. All right. Let's hear it, Rob. Um, I am uh, in the process of refinancing my mortgage. And uh, actually, someone did make a house call today. It was the notary. For me to uh, sign on all the documents, she yeah yeah she came over to my house and um, tonight actually said what time right you now want? is she is she a live audience yeah she's actually uh, doing this podcast for me right now oh, she's good. the one she's the one doing it um, really good not only you know good at notarizing but also really good at uh, learning a new voice and uh, very good yeah. very good so hats hat hats off to Kirsten hmm but um. No, it was it was kind of nice. It was because it's you know there's a lot of paperwork you got to sign, and you know I work you know like a normal work day like a lot of people, and it would be annoying to have to you know take a day off or take a half day to go someplace someplace to sign off everything. On the other hand of this process, uh, the well free market successory of Bitcoin, um, everyone says that, and and I know that the the UX of Bitcoin uh, has a lot of uh, a lot, a long way to go. There can be a lot of improvements made. But when someone starts complaining about sending a Bitcoin transaction, ask them if they've ever sent a wire. Because I had to send a wire today for the closing costs. And mm. um, it's, well, one, I had to go through my bank. I had to call my bank. They had to do it on my behalf. Then they had to call me back and verify it, uh, that it was going to go through. And then, like, I, you got to wait for it to go through the Federal Reserve and everything. And um, it's kind of terrifying, especially because usually when you're sending wires, um, it's it's a large amount of money. And not only yeah. that, it was expensive. It cost $10 for this. Uh, meanwhile, if I need to, need to send a Bitcoin transaction, uh, I get the person's address and I copy and paste it into, into my wallet software to send it. Uh, transaction fees are pretty low. These days, and also there's a checksum on it. You don't have to like be, you know, read it eight hundred thousand times. 
uh, where you, where you're sending the uh, the routing number and the and the account number for a wire. So it's um, you know, I, I have no doubt that there's going to be improvements made to sending Bitcoin transactions around and everything associated with Bitcoin. But the legacy system, if we're going to compare apples to apples, is not very user friendly, not very uh, fun, and it's it's nerve wracking and terrifying. So. Yeah. Well, I can think of another free market story. Um, with all these quarantines and self-isolation going on, uh, I think Amazon Prime is a free market success story because oh. a lot of people don't want to go out there and expose themselves going to a store, especially if you're an elderly person or immunocompromised. So you don't want to go out there and potentially mm -hmm. catch COVID. So they can use Amazon Prime to get everything delivered to their doorstep within two days. Yeah. Also great for libertarians that lack social skills. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not that there's any of them. No, I mean theoretically. Not that if I'm. Those not existed. that I'm. I'm Practically all of us. Not one of them. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Sure. All right. Well, Vake, uh, thanks again for coming on. Uh, this was uh, this was very informative. There were some real gems in this one. Like yeah, had this... no idea. So it's always nice to talk to someone because it's like we all think that we know a lot about the medical field because it's we, we all, all go to do. the doctor, we all take pills, we We're all, all, do all sorts of stuff, right? Yeah. But um, you know, to dig into the weeds with someone that you know we can, you know, just ask whatever's kind of on the top of our head. Uh, it's informative, and uh, yeah, we appreciate you coming on, and, and appreciate someone who kind of shares kind of where we're coming from. As far as you know, the economics and the politics go. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. A lot of doctors don't know the economic side of things, and and vice versa. Right. Yeah. So yeah. you want to? Do you want to uh, tell everyone where they can uh, find you if they want to harass you? You can find me on Twitter at at v a k e r a j. Okay, we'll put that in the show yeah. notes page. We'll also link to the uh, the other previous episodes when you were on when you uh, gave your other area of expertise, and that's Bitcoin. We learned a lot yep, from you yeah. early on in those yep, days. Yep, that's rapidly becoming my obsession. Maybe someday, <laughs> I mean, to be frank, I might leave medicine in the not-too-distant future to go into Bitcoin professionally. There you go. Nice. Dr. Bitcoin. When we did that first episode... Um, at least half of it, you could have been speaking Greek to me. It was, I was like, but that, that, that got the itch. That gave me yep. the itch. So it was a great episode. Um, I would like to listen to that again. Raul, have you listened to that one at all recently? Yeah, I'm terrified to. I know. I'm afraid to go back and listen to myself back then. Mm. So, um, but maybe I will. <laughs> yeah. Well, with time, I mean, People catch on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where it's why I try to tell people. It's like, yeah, I know. It's, it, it seems like it's a big learning curve and you don't understand any of it. But, you know, give yourself a little bit of time uh, and patience. And, you know, if I can pick it up, then I'm pretty sure basically anybody else can. I think it'll get easier as time goes on mm -hmm. just because the, the resources will get better, mm -hmm. the... Well, the it's like tools get better. If you tried to ex explain how the monetary system works currently, mm -hmm. people would glaze over and say you're crazy, but they know how to spend a dollar. Yeah. Well, I, I think it was Guy Swan brought this up on one of his episodes, and I think it's a really great example. 
because I think the internet's a good foil for Bitcoin to say, hey, you know, you don't really have to understand the the technical details of how the internet works. You just use it. And Ooh. and to go even deeper into that, it's like imagine your grandmother being on the telephone with you, telling you know, telling you how, oh, I don't I don't like the internet. I don't use the internet at all. I don't need it. While she's uh, it's voice over IP is what the making the phone call was. She doesn't even mm-hmm. know that the the old system of the telephone lines doesn't even exist anymore and that phone call is being made over the internet and she is using the internet but never has any idea that she is and i think it's it's going to be kind of the same thing with bitcoin and any any technology that emerges yeah. like that well one of the things i'm really excited about going forward in bitcoin is how multi-sig gets easier and easier because mm-hmm. i think i really think that that we have to transition to multi-signature becoming the standard for securing your keys um, just because it, it provides that additional level of security to have your keys physically distributed in different locations. Yeah, I think because especially with I think there's a lot of scope creep as far as hardware wallets go and they're mm-hmm. trying to become like, you know, physically secure. And it's like, well, I don't know that's really the purpose of a hardware wallet, but multi-sig solves that problem. Yeah. And, and it can it can be used in tandem with hardware wallets very, mm-hmm. very well. So, um, yeah, I think the sooner that happens, the better. So we, you know, stop focusing so much time and energy on something that's, you know, hardware wallets is physical security, I think is a real dead end, but there's not really yeah, there's, much of a better solution right now. So that's what everyone's trying to go for. But no, every I, I hardware about, wallet is just, it's just waiting to be hacked. Yeah. Or, or like, two, it's just, if, you know, most people, they have a hardware wallet and they have have their seeds written down. Mm-hmm. And their seeds are probably written down somewhere in their house. So if someone gains physical access to your hardware wallet, they probably have physical access to your backup seeds too. So Yeah, yeah. You have like, them in the same place. Yeah. I mean, hopefully you do a little bit better of a job with that. But, yeah, you know, it's that's that's where multisig comes in. That, that, that solves that problem. Yep. Well, there are those... Um, you know, it's like crypto steel and uh, those like um, those steel mm-hmm. cases where you can engrave your your seed in. Sometimes you can put those like you can bury them somewhere. Right, right. Yeah. So those are other options. Absolutely. Yeah. So again, Vake, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on and uh, show notes page for this episode. Well, you can find. Uh, Vake's Twitter Twitter handle and also his previous episodes if you want to go back and listen to that will be mcflugel.com slash 188 also be sure to check out libertymugs.com for uh, all your coronavirus needs and uh, <laughs> alright so thanks thanks for listening and we will catch you next week peace hey, later